We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Don't be so needy. It's a message that we're often given by society, our partner, or perhaps it's something we heard from our parents. Sometimes the messaging is more subtle, and you can't quite put your finger on how, but you've taken on board the idea that you are too much. Today, we're going to explore the idea that it's fine to have needs. You just need to know what they are, articulate them clearly, and when someone doesn't say yes immediately, know how to negotiate effectively. My witness today on The Meaningful Life is Mara Glatzel. She is an intuitive coach, the host of a podcast called Needy, and the author of a new book called Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty. Welcome, Mara. Your mantra is, you are human. You have needs. You're allowed to have needs. You're allowed to meet those needs. But you didn't always follow your own advice. Tell me about the fight you had with your partner four months after the birth of your first child. Yeah, what I found out after my daughter was born was that I didn't know anything about asking for what I needed. Before I had kids, I was able to meet my own needs pretty well by myself, you know, in the periphery of my life around the corners that I was caring for other people or doing things that, you know, had me seem productive and successful. And after my daughter was born, I realized that in that moment, I needed other people and I needed to learn how to communicate those needs to the people around me. But for people who struggle with this, we all know that it's one thing to say that and it's another thing to do it, right? It brings up a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings around enoughness and deserving and what's safe to ask for in a relationship. How did the request for needs come out then? So in that moment on the couch, my partner and I were discussing what our week would look like. And they said, you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. And this is, I'm I'm hoping to fit this in. And it felt as though there was one tiny scrap of time between us and they were just grabbing it and running away with it and leaving me with (laughs) nothing. And I was so stressed in that moment of, you know, what do I, I don't even know. I don't even have the time or energy to know what I need. So I don't know what to ask for, but I know I need to ask for something and kind of exploded in this moment. And my partner said that, you know, it's their job to know what they need. It's my job to know what I need. It's both of our jobs to bring that into the relational conversation and for us to negotiate in that way. And I realized that that was a skill that wasn't well-developed for me for a multitude of reasons. And that in order to be able to be comfortable and confident asking for what I needed, I was going to need to do a fair amount of personal work to get to that point. Because it's really believing that you're enough, believing that you're allowed to have needs and you're allowed to advocate for those needs. Of course, there are systemic reasons why we don't feel that is the case, but there are also personal reasons. And a lot of that work is an inside job. So one of the ways we downgrade our needs is we minimize them. We Mm -hmm. sort of say, well, actually, it's not really that important. And your needs are incredibly important. So I'm going to fulfill those. When did you start minimizing, do you think? I think I've probably always done that. And that's a combination of my own personality. I am a, a natural caregiver. I do, you know, now that I am doing this professionally, I'm able to see the skills that innately come to me that without a professional direction were sort of running rampant in my life. 
I think that women and people of all genders who are socialized as girls are socialized to put other people ahead of themselves, socialized to minimize their needs and care for themselves last. And we're told that's what it means to be a good wife or a good mother or a good friend. And I think in my household, when I was a kid, there was so much going on and it was so hard for me to get to the point of asking that I always seemed to miss my moment. I didn't grow up in a household where my needs didn't matter to the people around me, but I did grow up in such a place where things were moving quickly. And there are a lot of people, I have two sisters and my parents, my parents got divorced at one point, And there was always so much going on that it felt as though I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And then this weird thing would happen where I didn't advocate for my needs And nobody asked me if I needed anything because I was very pulled together and, you know, I was, I performed in a lot of ways academically and personally and socially. And in that, I think people assumed that I was okay. But my internal experience was I have needs. Those needs aren't being met. Nobody seems to notice or care. So maybe my needs don't matter. And it formed this feedback loop that took on a life of its own. And and that grew to that point in adulthood. I'm sitting on the couch with my partner and part of me is still thinking, well, this person who loves me should know what I need. And if they don't know what I need, do they love me? And what does all of this mean? And although you say it's a female thing, I mean, one of the things you write in your book, I can agree with 100%. I got exactly Mm -hmm. the same message. You say, take care of yourself. Don't make a fuss. Downplay your emotions. Be good. Now, my parents never actually said those words, but they filtered through the atmosphere. And actually, those are far more powerful than if somebody says, you know, be good, downplay your emotions. You can say no. But if it's not actually being said, it's just being subtly fed in with the sort of the air in the room. How can you rebel against that? You don't even notice it. Yeah, it is true. It seems impenetrable because it's reflected back at you from every angle. And it can be subtle and seductive because when we're children, we're looking for what we need to do to belong. We're looking for how to fit in, how to form connections in a way that feels safe and easy. And we're interpreting all of that data so that we can continue doing that. And so if the data that we're getting is, I seem to overwhelm people when I talk about how I feel or I talk about what I need, I'm automatically going to learn to minimize that to achieve that successful connection. Of course, when we're small, belonging is absolutely associated with our safety. We require care from the people around us in order to continue existing. And the belonging aspect is so important that we are learning every day what and who we need to be in order to belong. And although we think it keeps us safe, it's a sort of false safety, isn't it? Yeah. It feels as though belonging to the people around us will keep us safe. But when it comes at the cost of belonging to ourselves, which it so often does, especially as we grow through into adulthood where we don't have the same need to belong to our families of origin, we don't have the same urgency. There may still be urgency, but it's not the biological urgency that we experience during our childhood. And so as we grow into adulthood, quite often belonging to other people comes at the cost of belonging to ourselves. And so then we start to have this feeling of everything in my life hinges on performing a certain way, hinges on me being able to be the person that they expect me to be, to fulfill the relationship contracts that we've held historically, to be pleasing in a multitude of ways. And it comes at the cost of having a relationship with yourself that's rich with self-trust and self-compassion and self-partnership. And so you have that feeling of maybe you're invited to the party, but even when you're surrounded by people, you're all alone, which is such a deeply lonely feeling. 
And I think what is so extraordinary about this is that all of these things were set in our childhood when we had actually very few very few options and very little power. We didn't have a bank account and the keys to a car. So your choices are really rather small. But as adults, we have, you know, we do have the keys to the car. We have a bank account. We have a credit card. You know, we have an awful lot of, of agency, but we sort of are still running on those old scripts from our childhood. So how do you get rid of the old childhood script and begin to say, actually, I've got more agency in the world? I think that this is a process of unlearning some of the things that we carry that no longer serve us or maybe never served us and learning new ways to connect with the world around us. And so it's this tandem process of realizing, oh, wow, that doesn't work. And when I say realizing that doesn't work, usually you see that in I'm feeling extremely resentful. I'm feeling really angry. I'm having an out of proportion response to something and realizing, okay, there is a part of me that is not being seen or heard in this situation. Maybe there's a boundary I need to set. Maybe there's something that I need that's not being met and starting to follow your own clues to get curious. And a lot of times, the stories that I love, Brene Brown has this prompt that I always butcher, which is something akin to, what is the story that I'm telling myself right now? And many of these stories are historical in nature. So that's another thing to look out for. And I know for myself when something's historic, because there's a tantrum-y effect to it. There's a very young part of me that is triggered by that situation. And so I might want to be really reactive. I might want to throw a fit. I might feel particularly whiny or, you know, I have young kids, so I'm <laughs> very familiar with what these behaviors are. Um, and I see them in myself. I'm, I'm emotionally dysregulated. And in that moment, there's this part of me that has this story that's carried through over the course of my life. For example, that feeling that I said about you know, because nobody's asking me how I'm doing, I don't matter to them. And when that gets ignited, I'm not responding from 2023, current, present day, Mara. I'm responding from six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, that real need and pressure. Younger than that. Yeah, Five younger than that old, too. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so really starting to notice that the way that we react in the, when we have those big reactions, that there's something there for us. And I like to approach this with a lot of curiosity. Too often, we presume to know best, right? We think we know everything. Maybe we've done a lot of therapy, or we've read a bunch of self-help books, or we've done a lot of self-inquiry. And being in relationship with yourself means being open to being surprised by yourself. We think about this as a relationship with somebody else. We don't always presume to know exactly what they're going to say or how they're going to feel. And so being open to relating with yourself and being curious about what you carry, how it impacts you, what you might be ready, able, and willing to do differently, and following your own lead instead of a prescribed path towards, you know, 10 steps to growing up or getting your needs met or whatever the case may be. And I think you're right that it is useful to try and approach this from a different sort of kind of avenue in. And so one of the things I really loved about your book was it started with a poem. And this is quite a well-known poem, but um, over the last couple of days while I've been reading your book, this poem has been staying with me and has sort of cropped up today and a couple of times. So I think it seems like this poem is needing to be read. I'm going to tell you after you've read it what is speaking to me today, but I'd also like you also, when you've finished reading it, I'm going to ask you the same question, what's actually, which part of it is speaking to you today? And I'm going to invite you, the listener, to think about which part of it is speaking to you today. So. All right, the poem is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. 
You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. It is the most beautiful poem. The bit that has been really speaking to me today is our soft animal body. And it spoke to me in two ways. So I've just started, I've been trying to do this for many years, but uh, I'm having a really serious attempt at the moment to do a morning meditation, 20 minutes morning meditation. And I mean, that is something I need. But my gosh, do I have an internal voice that says, you know, this is 20 minutes I could be doing something productive with, et cetera, et cetera. And this morning, when I was doing my 20 minutes, a sort of haiku came to me, and I, I do a, a haiku if I can each day. The morning cushion, my soft animal body, sighs, welcome home friend. And so stilling my mind allowed me to get in touch with my soft animal body. And I was talking to a client who saw themselves as a machine and actually found it very difficult to have needs. In fact, it was interested not even in the machine, but the product of the machine. You know, so effectively when he was a child would have been interested in getting a good grade rather than what it took to produce that. And it seemed so different from the idea of a soft animal body, which would have a sense of what our needs might be. So that's what spoke to me in that poem. What spoke to you today when you read it, Mara? I too love the idea of the soft animal body. But what is speaking to me today is the very end of the poem, that each and every one of us innately belongs to the family of things. And this is an idea that I find empowering and comforting at the same time. And I have the absolute luxury to live where Mary Oliver lived and wrote many of her poems. And I spend a lot of time outside here walking my dog and thinking about these things. And that when we feel lonely, when we're not sure how we relate to the humans around us or if we relate to the humans around us, that we belong innately to the family of things and that we have more in common with the natural world around us than we do any of our machines, our devices, that we ebb and flow like the tide, that we wax and wane like the moon, that we cycle through seasons. And as a person who struggled with perfectionism and control for much of my life, I really have to make a point every day to remind myself that I am not intended to be the same day in and day out. I'm not intended to be voraciously productive 24-7, 365 days a year. And this poem really reminds me of that. And in a sense, if you belong, then so so do your needs belong, don't yeah. they? Mm-hmm. You don't see the flowers apologizing for how much they need to be watered. You know, it's just, they, they need what they need in kind of a point blank sort of way. There's a lot to learn there. So when you started on this journey to accept your needs, what did you do? I fought it out a lot with myself. Um, (laughs) You know, really, again and again, getting curious, you know, this cycle, I have needs, nobody cares. Do I really have needs? Do my needs matter? I just brought everything up to question. Is that true? Do I know for sure that that is true? And by and large, the answers were no, 
but it still felt so dangerous to test some of those theories, particularly in my biggest relationships, which so many of my clients come to me and say the same thing, that the person that is the hardest to ask is the person with whom they are the most closely connected. And that feeling of, you know, coming to my partner and asking or kind of falling apart, that the stakes are so high. And yet also we yearn to be known in those partnerships and just that push and pull that happens there. But what I found for myself is that that wasn't the appropriate place to start the work, right. that the work had to start a lot earlier. And it was in getting curious and get, becoming familiar with my needs. I had never slowed down enough to really ask myself what I needed. And so the work became, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? Asking myself, turning towards myself, familiarizing myself with my own needs so that then I could begin the conversation of asking for what I needed. Because what I suggested to my client today, and I would suggest it to everybody, is to keep a needs diary. And so the idea is you record you know, the time, what the trigger was, and what the need was. So, you know, that you looked out the window, it was sunny, and the need was to go out and enjoy the sunshine. Or, you know, it might be something incredibly simple. It was one o'clock and the need was for food. But you're actually aware of your needs and how you respond to them. And you'd be amazed at how many needs you're going to have. Yeah. And I would expand on that a little bit. When you're keeping that journal, sometimes you're going to encounter needs that you do not have the capacity to meet. So you might feel overwhelmed by the presence of an unrequited need. And I would recommend that you write those down as well, because we want to start breaking the connection between acknowledge need must meet need immediately, because it's a lot of pressure. And sometimes because of life circumstance or energetic capacity or that particular moment, our needs are not able to be met. And so how can we acknowledge our needs and kind of hold them safe and warm for ourselves, even if it is not possible for that need to be met in the moment? Because that connection, just the urgency of that, that we are allowed to, you know, Mary Oliver says, <laughs> we're allowed to slow down. We're allowed to have needs, to be needy, and to not rush and fulfill that need in that exact moment. But what if these needs feel shameful? They will. And I think knowing that is useful because too often we expect if it's right, it feels good. And this work doesn't feel good by and large. And when you know that, you can give yourself that permission. It doesn't mean I'm doing it wrong. It doesn't mean I need to relearn how to do it. It just means that this is such tender territory. So the reason that I became interested in working on needs specifically is because my daughter was born. I had a really challenging pregnancy. I had been in labor for many days. Then she was born. Oh. And I was supposed to be her mother. And I wanted to be her mother, but I was so personally exhausted. And it, I just realized how when you're in utero, all of your needs are being met. You don't have to advocate for a thing. And then you're born and you're this baby. And all you can do is scream. And your parents did not get a manual. They do not know what they're doing. They're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure it out. It's kind of a mess. And we begin to encode on such a subtle level, people responding to our needs that early, the face of our caregiver, which may have nothing to do with us. You know, they may have financial stressors, mental health struggles. I mean, postpartum mood issues, all of those things. And they're responding to us. And even in that subtle baby way, we're beginning to notice when I cry this way, my parent seems angry, right? And it just grows from there. 
So when you're thinking about doing this work and it brings up shame and it brings up grief because it does bring up grief profoundly, being so gentle with yourself and anticipating this is deep work. It may seem shallow sometimes, right? It may seem like I'm getting dressed or I'm feeding myself a certain thing for breakfast, but it is deep work allowing yourself to be known, approving of yourself and accepting yourself, even in the things you might not wish were seen by others. And so when those feelings come up, instead of judging yourself or shutting down, you might get curious and say, what do I need when I feel ashamed? What grounds me? Now, when you actually began to know what you needed, you then have to start advocating for it or asking for it. And my suspicion is if you've been used to running around after other people, they're going to rather miss that. There might be a bit of sort of kickback on this new um, articulate, assertive Amara. Was this new personality greeted with open arms? No. And some relationships, frankly, didn't survive it. And I think it is important to say that too. It was heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. But what I found was when I started showing up as I truly am, and when I started asking for what I needed, there were some people that I realized were only in it for their needs. They weren't interested in actually knowing me. Or they liked the version of myself that I had been showing up as, and it wasn't, I could no longer do that for them. But by and large, the relationships found their footing. It's kind of like you're in a boat, you throw something out, it rocks for a little bit, but then it comes to equilibrium. And what I found really useful for myself, and I recommend this to all of my clients, is to talk about talking about it. So I started an experiment where I was no longer going to assume or read the room or rush to meet somebody else's need unless it was explicitly expressed to me. So that doesn't mean I didn't have that information. I have that information in spades. But I was holding a boundary with myself that I was not going to act on anything unless I was explicitly asked. And so I told my partner, I told my siblings, I told my parents that moving forward, you know, that I love them, that I wanted to be there for them. It's not about that, but that I'm trying to cut down on the misunderstanding and the mismanagement and the amount of energy that I was pouring forward that maybe nobody wanted or needed from me. And so bringing all of those conversations to an explicit level was kind of a trip, but it has borne (laughs) out to be so, it's just my most successful experiment to date. And it made me realize how much of these conversations are silent, how much mind reading we expect from one another, and also how much I liked being able to say, this is my specific preference. I thought I wanted other people to read my mind. I thought that that was what love meant. But when I realized how different it was to say, you know what, today I want this, or today I'm inclined in this direction. I like that too. We all benefited. Now, one of the things that's really important is that you don't have a negotiation beforehand with yourself. By this, I mean, for example, I need picking up from the station. Let's imagine that that's the request. And you start to think to yourself, well, actually, it's a bit of an antisocial time for it to be happening. And maybe I could take a taxi. So instead of asking, can you pick me up from the station? You start saying, if there's not a taxi available, would you be prepared to come and collect me? You haven't actually asked for what you really want. You've already had a negotiation. And so you're coming to your partner with the bare minimum rather than just a simple request. What do you think of this idea? Yes. Coach and writer Marsha Baczynski has this great game that she teaches her clients where they practice asking for 100% of what they need. Because the idea being that when you come together, many of us are 
internally taking what we need and slicing it up into pieces and thinking about, oh, well, less of what do I need and what do I want and more of what do I think I'm going to get? What do I think the other person wants to give me? And so maybe we've taken 100% of what we need and we've brought it down to 21%. And then mm. it's a it's a negotiation, right? So then you come into the conversation and you say, okay, well, yes, I can do this or no, I can't do this. And because you've already come down so far, you might leave with 10% of what you actually wanted. And so the game that she puts forth, and I like to play this myself, and I like to encourage my clients to play it, is to practice asking for 100% of what you need. And again, I like to set this up in advance, talk about talking about it. I tell my partner, hey, I want to do this thing where we both ask for 100% of what we need and we figure it out together. And because we've asked for 100% of what we need, even when it's uncomfortable, but it does get easier with practice, even when it's uncomfortable, then we might end up with 75% or 80% or even 65%, but so much more than we would if we did that process of cutting down what we need over and over and over again in our mind before we start the conversation. And if we think about this from an outside perspective, it is useful information to have 100% of what somebody else needs. I actually want to know. I don't want to know the bit, the tiny sliver that you think I can handle. First of all, that makes me feel underestimated. But second of all, when I have the full information, then I can do my job, which is say, this is how much capacity I have. This is where I can meet you. This is how. And maybe it's not the part that you thought I was going to say yes to. Or maybe I have a bigger capacity to say yes to more than you could have imagined. So in effect, it's also having faith in the people we're in relationships with that they can rise to the occasion and they might be capable of more and interested in more than we think they will be. One thing I would say is it's really important just to have a simple ask. Will you collect me from the station? The temptation is to then start justifying why we need that and to say, you know, it's cold and it's dark and, and I'm frightened. And the more you justify and explain, this is really weird, but the more your partner is going to hear criticism of them. They're going to hear, oh, it's dark and cold. And although you haven't said it, they're going to hear you say, and you don't care enough to come and collect me. That the more you justify and explain, which possibly might take in, I mean, in, in my counselling room, sometimes with couples, you know, they can justify for two or three minutes. And we've actually lost what the question was in the first place. But in that time, your partner is hearing criticism and defence in a way that if you just say, can you collect me from the station? They don't. Absolutely. And it also sounds like a negotiation. And any other top tips on how to negotiate for what you need? I think that overwhelmingly, your approach needs to be rooted in how are we working together to get our needs met as much as possible. So in that moment on the couch where we started, the reason it was so fraught was because it felt like a competition. There is this small scrap of time and energy between us and you are grabbing it and leaving me with nothing. Whereas if and when we are able to relate to that scrap as a unit and say, we acknowledge that we have this four-week-old baby and there is not a lot of time and not a lot of energy between us. And what can we do? How can we best utilize our minimal shared resources so that we both can have our needs met? And maybe that is going to look different than we ever thought it would look. Or maybe it challenges ideas of what that will be like. Thinking about, I was at a party two days ago where I was sharing that my partner and I are taking separate trips to Italy this fall. Oh, I have to go for work. I'm running a, a retreat in Tuscany and they wanted to go with me, but because we have little kids, it's too challenging for us to go and to get childcare and to navigate for us to go for two weeks, both at the same time. So we came to the table and said, well, I want to do this and I want to do this. And actually it works 
for me to go and for them to go and for us to, you know, the other to stay with the kids and do all of the normal kid things. And I was at this party and my friends were saying, you know, doesn't that feel bad or weird? Do you have judgments to think you should want to go on vacation together? But these things aren't mutually exclusive. We both had this desire to go somewhere and to have an experience that was outside of our home. What is most stable for us in this moment is to have one parent present. And then the other can be free to really enjoy the experience. And so we creatively came up with this solution. It's not something I would have thought of before. But again, when we can operate from that perspective of we're in this together, how can we both have our needs met as much as possible? And maybe it looks different than we thought it would, but who cares? It doesn't matter. And I think what you're demonstrating is how important it is to go into those negotiations with no preconceptions. Mm -hmm. If you've come up with a solution like this and you say, let's do this, that's very different from you and your partner coming up with it together. So you're both invested in it rather than one person trying to sell it to the other person. So uh, I really love that. What do you do when you get a no? Because you are going to get a no, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, no's are inevitable. So when we think about these conversations, it is important to have an understanding of what's happening. So your job is to ask for what you need. The other person's job is to determine whether or not they have the capacity to meet you in that need. And if not this, then what? Or if not this, then how? That's their job. It is your job to tolerate their response. And in tolerating their response, it is also your job to manage any of the stories that you're telling yourself because that response is not necessarily a referendum on your need, which it feels like that oftentimes. If they say no, it means my need was bad or I shouldn't have asked or I should have needed something else that was more convenient. But when we begin to work ourselves into the groove of, I have an ask, this is what it is, they are responsible for whether or not they have the capacity to meet you, and they may offer some alternatives, and you get to determine whether or not that's acceptable to you. But ultimately, the need is your responsibility. So when you get a no, I recommend working on, and this is a practice, not taking that no personally not making that mean. And Mm. you might even do, this is a great journaling prompt. They said, no, what's coming up for me right now? What stories am I telling myself? (laughs) And once you sit with that piece, getting curious and creative about how else to meet that need. And my clients often say, well, that need is a partner need. You know, I can't meet that need without that person. But is that true? Is it totally true? Might it look different than you thought it would look? So the question I'm looking at for myself is, you said no, what now? Is there someone else I could hook up with to meet that need, right? So for example, I love a ton of things my partner doesn't love. And there are other people in my life that I do those things with, like watch Vanderpump Rules or, you know, these sorts of things that my partner's not interested in. I have people that I do that with. Maybe there's something that I want from them, but they're not available for at this time. Maybe they're in a grief season or they're struggling themselves or they're busy with something. And I get to decide how to tend to that need by myself, with somebody else, in a multitude of ways. So my need doesn't live or die with their answer. My need is my own to tend to, and I get to choose what that looks like. And I also get to feel how I feel about it. It doesn't have to be this, you know, resolute, stout sort of acceptance. I can have grief. I can feel sad. I can also determine my needs haven't been met in this situation for a long time. And maybe that means something to me. And I might want to take action to either have a higher level conversation or to leave that relationship. But again, really taking that responsibility for your needs and for tending to those needs 
has to come at the core of that. So we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back with a listener's letter. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. There are many ways to participate in The Meaningful Life. I do hope you'll become a supporter. You can find out how to do that at www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you'll find out how to get to the bonus material, because with every edition comes all sorts of wonderful bonus material for subscribers only. You can also sign up for my Substack newsletter, and I send uh, an interesting article I've written every two weeks. That's entirely free. And you can also write to us with your dilemmas. And I scour the internet and the world to find people to uh, come up with some good answers. So this letter, I think, will speak to a lot of people. We never discuss my husband's affair, which hasn't even been acknowledged as an affair nor is there any inclination to do so, which I understand from my partner's perspective. However, this has left me feeling alone, unable to explain why I'm really upset at times. It's as if everything is being quietly dropped. In addition, there has been no apology or one ounce of remorse, probably because that would be an omission in and of itself. I'm afraid to say anything because raising it would induce so much shame and guilt in my partner, they would probably not be able to deal with it. Past experience tells me this. So I just carry on, and I don't even say anything in our marriage counselling. On top of that, there is very little intimacy, and sex is off the table, so I immediately think something is wrong with me, which only adds to my anxiety and sexual jealousy too. I literally can't escape the affair. And although things are much better between my partner and I, I am still very angry and upset. I often think, what did I ever do to deserve this? Myra, what are your thoughts? I first want to acknowledge how heartbreaking it is to have something of such personal magnitude that you feel as though you can't talk about in your relationship. And I have questions about whether or not a conversation might be possible. But where I want to begin is with you and what you need. Shockingly, I'm sure. And as I read this question for the first time, I was thinking about you're angry. You're experiencing grief. You're experiencing these powerful feelings. And what do you need in those moments? Because Maybe what you want is an apology, is an acknowledgement, is comfort or reassurance from your partner. But in the absence of that, what is available to you? And I would recommend that during this time, you bring your focus to what you need, what makes you feel loved and cared for and appreciated, all of those ways that you might wish to be met in your relationship and begin to think about how you're feeding that in your relationship with yourself. Because when I got to that last question of what did I do to deserve this or did I do anything to deserve this, I wanted to rush in and say, no, 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 no. But I know from personal experience that there can be this imbalance that happens when we're in relationship, where we're looking outward for everything that feeds us and lights us up. And so we our, our relationship with ourselves can starve in relationship with other people because we're expecting, my needs are supposed to be met here, that we completely overlook what we might be able to offer ourselves. And we can offer ourselves so much. And so beginning with that, beginning with caring for yourself when you're feeling angry, what do you need? What would feel good? Do you want to 
go somewhere and scream? Do you want to write about it? Do you want to talk to somebody else that, you know, maybe outside of couples counseling, a therapist unto yourself or a friend? Finding ways to create portals for that support and that tending that you can have independent of the status of your relationship in the moment. And what really struck me is that our correspondent is much more in tune with what her husband wants than what she wants. He wants that the affair isn't acknowledged. He Mm -hmm. wants not to feel shame. He wants to have little or no intimacy. So we're getting a very clear idea of what he wants, but we're only sort of getting what she wants in sort of absence. We're having to sort of guess it, don't we? Mm -hmm. Well, and I imagine that that reflects her vision, right? Her experience over perhaps a long period of time in their relationship. That experience, she says in there somewhere, experience has taught me that my needs aren't going to matter. But that too is an inside job. And whether or not your needs matter to you is of utmost importance. And I think this probably goes back a long way. I think in the same way that you started scanning the room to try and make everybody else happy when you were a kid, I suspect our correspondent has been doing this for a long time. And I think that actually helps to understand that because it sort of minimizes a little bit the anger that's specifically directed at your partner and actually spans it out a little bit more. And the solution is actually spanned out a bit more because actually if you begin to start advocating for your needs with your mother or your siblings and at work, it becomes a bit of a rolling stone. It gets easier and easier as it goes down the hill to start advocating in your couple relationship as as well. And as you're saying, you can actually get some of your needs met yourself. And sometimes if you ask for positive things, you say, you know, actually, I need to be held. If you just ask, you know, I need to be held without the justifying, I need to be held because you've rejected me so much recently that I really need to be held. Um, You can begin to see you're not likely to get a hug. But if you say at this moment, I'm feeling really down and I need to be held, that might be something that could be done. And I have to say, if it can't be done, what are you doing in this relationship? It's a very brutal thing to say, but I I sort of feel the need to say it. I'm sorry. Yeah. As you were talking, something that I was thinking about too is who is in your corner? Just you, right? Who can surround you and those feelings of there's something in me that is unlovable or is undesirable or unwanted, that is so painful to carry. And we can look to that one person to give us what we need in that regard. And we might overlook a community of friends who feel that way about us, or even just one person or a coworker that a relationship could be fostered with or a sibling that there may be people in your life who see you not exactly in the same way that you want to be seen in a romantic sense, but see how much you give, see how wonderful you are. And so what would it be like to spend time with those people and having that fed in you so that it feels more real and more whole? You know, a lot of times when we struggle to ask for what we need in our relationships because we're approaching it from that place of, I don't deserve to have my needs met. I need to better myself in order to better deserve my needs being met. But that's not the case. And so whether that's people in real life or people that, you know, you can read books of or listen to podcasts of or surround yourself with in your social media fields, but bolstering that part of you that says who you are right now is perfectly enough and you deserve to have needs and you're allowed to ask for those needs to be met. You are one half of that relationship and you're not a foregone conclusion and that you matter. And I think one person you can speak to about these needs is your marriage counsellor. I really do think you can say to your marriage counsellor, I'm feeling at the moment in this room that my needs are not being met. Now, just saying that, she's 
or he is probably going to say, and what are your needs in this room at this moment? And I think you need to be ready to answer that. So you know what your needs are in this room. So in this room, I would like not to be interrupted. Or in this room, I would like to be able to talk about what's making me angry at the moment, or whatever it is. And it could be you could negotiate about the fact that you are allowed to discuss the affair in your marriage counselling. This is a safe space. There's somebody there to hold the boundaries. You don't have to worry about your partner's shame. That is his responsibility and the marriage counsellor's responsibility to support and help him. It's not your responsibility. And this is a place where you can put that to one side. So I would like to feel that inside your marriage counselling space, this is somewhere where your needs can be heard. Now, I don't know if they can be met, but they can certainly be heard. And that would be a huge thing if you could say. And as a marriage counsellor, every time somebody says to me, this is not going very well, I go, ah, thank goodness we can address the elephant in the room. Because often people are trying so hard to make it work that it's actually very difficult for me to get to the real stuff because I'm being pushed away. Or there's something inside me that's saying, this isn't quite going right, but I'm not quite certain what it is. And for somebody to say, this isn't working for me, you know, that is one of my golden moments. You think that we're going to be not like being challenged, but it's actually golden because number one, we can reset. Number two, we learn something. And number three, it's really wonderful when our clients express their needs. So I hope that was helpful and I hope it's given you lots to think about. So we're coming towards, unfortunately, the end of the main body of the podcast. I'll tell people in a moment what we're going to be discussing in a moment, but it's a real juicy topic. But um, before we leave the main podcast as a witness on the meaningful life, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Right now, contributing to my local community in ways that I feel creatively lit up about, and that excite me. So if you'd like to find out more about our next topic, which is raising needy children, when I thought of that idea, I just immediately crumpled inside. I thought, oh gosh, that sounds terrible. And the fact that it sounded terrible meant to me that this is a subject we really need to talk about because <laughs> we should want needy children. I'll explain more in a moment, but if you want to hear this valuable bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.